Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. If nothing else, the past few years of a pandemic has proven that many businesses rely on the global landscape. Shutting borders during the COVID-19 pandemic meant that many suffered from a lack of qualified staff, from missed trade opportunities, from not travelling to events and from being unable to make quality connections beyond the realm of our laptops. While many organisations have perhaps shifted their focus domestically during the past few years because of necessity, there's no doubt that many still want to operate on a global scale. Enter my guest today. Cynthia Deeran is the founder of Deeran and Associates, and she's launched a new book, Business Beyond Borders, Take Your Company Global International. This book provides a step-by-step accessible guide for business owners and entrepreneurs who want to amplify their impact on the international stage. Drawing upon decades of experience in international business, including extensive shifts working abroad in global roles, the author brings a unique perspective on international expansion and guides readers on how to execute the right strategy to ensure their success. Cynthia has 23 years of international experience and is on a mission to empower business owners and CEOs to scale internationally and amplify their impact in the world. An Australian qualified legal practitioner, Cynthia has worked in the UK, US, Europe and Middle East as an Australian diplomat and a management consultant. She also spent three years as a CEO of the Australia Arab Chamber of Commerce and Industry. She's proficient in Arabic and French, and both of which she uses these professionally, which I'm sure super helpful when you're trying to go global. And her previous book has a fabulous title called Camels, Sheiks and Billionaires, Your Guide to Business Culture in the Middle East and North Africa. And today we're here to discuss the politics of global business. Welcome, Cynthia. Thanks for having me on the show, Amber. Podcasting remotely can be challenging, but it doesn't have to be. Since 2017, I have relied on Zencaster's all-in-one web-based solution to make the process quick and painless, the way podcasting should be. If you know me, I'm pretty obsessed with quality guests, quality content, and quality sound, and that's what Zencaster allows me to do. Not to mention, it's really easy to use, even for my guests that aren't particularly tech-savvy. There's nothing to download, they just click on the link and we start recording. Zencaster is all about making your podcasting experience easy and with everything from local recording to automatic post-production all in the one tool, you don't have to leave your browser to get each episode done. I want you to have the same great experience that I do for all my podcasts and content needs. So I have a special offer for you. If you go to zen.ai forward slash politics of everything and enter this promo code, you'll get 30% off in your first three months when you sign up to Zencaster Pro. That's Z. E-N dot A-I, politics of everything. It's now time to share your story. Excellent. So what did young Cynthia want to be when she was a kid? I mean, diplomat sounds pretty cool, but is that something you want to do since you were 10 or was that sort of not the childhood dream? No, actually it was. Um, (laughs) I think maybe my dad suggested it to me when I was about 10 or 12, and it was around the time that my family had just done several months of travel to different parts of the world, including Singapore, Russia, 
the United Kingdom with a quick stop off in Tashkent and Delhi. And so I thought it sounded pretty glamorous, even though I wasn't exactly sure what it did. And you know, when you're a kid, how people are always asking you, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. And I'm so tired of that question that I just started saying, I want to be a diplomat because it usually got people off my back. Uh, so yeah, that actually was what I wanted to be when I grew up. <laughs> when I was so a did kid, it actually work up. out? Which, yeah, you're kind of like me. I mean, I want to be a journalist from the age of eight. I used to watch 60 Minutes on Sunday night. I'm probably maybe a bit older than you, I'm not sure, but um, and just look at that, you know, people being in the Middle East or, you know, Asia or whatever and just think, wow, that looks so cool. So I kind of became a journalist because I had said I was going to be for a long time. So sometimes those things um, do actually have a purpose. Self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> Absolutely. So expanding internationally feels like a bit of a pipe dream, I guess, for many Australian businesses. But despite the upending of many systems and pressures on supply chains during COVID, your new book claims there is a global marketplace ready right now. You just need to know how to get into it and do it well. Can you explain for most of us who are not familiar with this process, what are the biggest barriers for businesses to get that global expansion thing happening and how can they remedy that? Look, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, a lot of people are very freaked out by what's happening with supply chains at the moment. And look, it's true that it has been a crisis situation for a bunch of businesses, but it's a relatively temporary thing. You know, in five years time, we're not going to have the same situation with the supply chain. So I'm going to say the supply chain issues that we're seeing now are an issue, but they are not what I would call the first and foremost barriers. So the things that really stop people, if you take it up to the highest level, are things like fear, you know, looking at it and saying, wow, that looks so difficult. I don't think I can do it. Actually, I'm just going to stay home. Or looking at it and saying, wow, I can see all this opportunity, but, you know, I really don't know where to start. Yes. Looks a bit hard, a bit complicated and messy. Well, maybe there's a lot of risk involved. Where would we even begin? And so, again, it kind of falls into the too hard basket. At the other end of the spectrum, you get people who say, well, this will be a snap. It'll be just like doing oh my business goodness. at home. Really? Do people actually think that who've had any lived experience? Oh, my goodness. Oh, it's crazy. I think, look, if a company does well at home. Oh, of course. It's easy to often, go. You know, people, Rinse and people's repeat. heads tend to swell a little. You know, CEOs get a little puffed up and they're like, well, we've done so well here. Obviously, this is going to be super easy. Uh, and then they do it in a pretty ad hoc fashion and that usually does not turn out so well. So, I mean, for me... When you look at the world, 99% of people who you could be selling to are not in Australia and, you know, 99.99% are not in your hometown. We now have 8 billion people in the world. About half of those people can potentially buy something from you. If you look at Hootsuite's report that came out in April called The State of Digital, something like 63% of the world is now on the internet. A majority of those people are using the internet to actually make purchases. And I'm struggling for the for the exact stats here, but they're all in the 50s, 60s and 70s when it comes to percentage of people online, percentage of people using social media to make buying decisions and percentage of people actually making a purchase on their mobile phone every single week. So, you know, I look at the world and where a lot of people see threat, I actually see opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's why you do what you do. So I guess 
Not all businesses are a type that is suited to global expansion, like the local cafe that's not a franchise or even my PR business is probably limited in some ways because people often want people in a local environment because of the cultural differences and the time differences when you are doing sort of communication strategies and and implementation. So are there hallmarks of who can scale up globally and who can't? And do you have an example perhaps where it has worked or hasn't worked? Yeah, sure. Look, I mean, I think, you know, you're right. If you run a corner shop, you're probably not really the ideal candidate to go global because you don't really have that much competitive advantage. You know, you don't have anything special about stocking milk and crackers and other basic items that can't be replicated in India or Singapore or the US or wherever it is. But the companies that tend to do really well when they go global are companies that have a product or a service or a bundled offering that has something unique about it. Maybe the actual service is not particularly unique, but it's the way it's delivered that is special. Wherever you have a company that stands out in some way and can offer something that nobody else can do, that is a company that has real potential to be hugely successful in the international market. I mean, there are so many examples of companies that have done this really well, but let me let me talk about one that I'm working with at the moment. It is the world's first patented smart helmet. And so this is What is a, a smart helmet? helmet. Do you, yeah, I think you need to walk us through this. Yeah. And this is a motorbike helmet for people who love to ride motorbikes. And I th- probably the founder would not quite agree with me if I explained it this way, but I'll explain it this way because, you know, I'm not a techie person. It's, think kind of Google Maps or Google Glass inside a helmet. Okay. So when you put your bike helmet on and you drive around, you can see the map, you can see the directions, there's audio navigation, you know, it tells you if there are police in the area, it does all these things. It's kind of very night Rider, Right. This is a very unique product. There are, you know, very few, if any, things that are around like this helmet. And one of the members of the executive team has just been on a roadshow around the United States and everywhere he went, he was expecting a little bit of pushback, a little bit of resistance. And everywhere he went, the people who he showed the helmet to, the suppliers and so forth said, this is amazing. When can we get these? Like, we need to buy these right away. Uh, and that is because this is not a stock standard ho-hum kind of product. It's something that has been thought through for a long time and designed by a bunch of people who are very, very passionate about motorbikes and riding them. And so when it's presented to that international audience who hasn't seen something like this before, they're like, we need this. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess like that's a product, but I sometimes it's probably services might be harder in some ways to replicate. I don't know, like what's what works in an economy here in Australia, and obviously we've got huge, say, geographical distance to cover, is very different to being, say, in you know parts of Asia where you might have six million people in a very compact space. So I'm thinking of businesses, you know, like for example, Milk Run, who you know do you know groceries in 15 minutes. That doesn't work everywhere, for example, and people don't even want that everywhere. So those sorts of businesses, I'm wondering how they kind of replicate a model. Well, look, I mean, there are some fantastic examples in the software as a service in the SaaS space where we have a competitive advantage in Australia when we're selling to places like Europe and the UK and the United States because of what's known as geo-arbitrage. And that means that our dollar is relatively weaker when compared to the currencies in those countries. But in Australia, the level of education, the level of technical skill of the population means that there are plenty of companies who have come up with very, very high quality services, including in the 
technology in the SaaS space that are appealing to consumers and companies in Europe, in UK, and in the United States. And even though sometimes they are not 100% unique, there might be competitors in their other those other markets, Australian companies have an advantage because they speak English as their native language. They are highly educated and have a level of technical skill that makes their product fantastic. And so they can offer that to these advanced markets. They can provide the quality that's expected, but because the Australian dollar is so much weaker, they can actually supply the same quality of service and either make a huge profit by charging the same prices in that country, or they can drastically undercut the competition and make less margin, but still a very, very healthy profit. So if you want an example that's pure services and not SaaS, I had a conversation with a gentleman the other day who does high-end recruitment, mm. right? And he's built a multi-million dollar business here in Australia doing recruitment, but is now looking to take that offshore and has already successfully recruited for large companies in the States and the UK. The entire thing was done out of Australia because they have a business model that's very appealing. And then when you add geo-arbitrage on top of that, they can go in and provide a service that is exactly on the same par as what's provided by competitors in the UK and US, but at a much, much lower price point, and they're still coming out of it very well reimbursed. Mm, that's fascinating. So it is possible. It is totally possible. So cultural divides exist and not all international markets are the same, clearly. What is the best way that uh, newbies could navigate that cultural challenge? And is there examples where you really do need a local to kind of guide you and maybe times where maybe you don't and you can just sort of do it because it's such a great product or service that it has global demand. And, you know, I'm thinking of things like, I don't know, Apple iPhones when they first came out, you know, their campaigns might have been nuanced but not much. You know, it was quite global, I guess, what they were trying to do in terms of world phone domination. Look, I think it very much depends what you are selling, you know, and to whom you are selling it. So if you sell sparkly earrings or soy candles or bikinis that you can chuck in a post pack and you have a Shopify shop or an Etsy shop or you list them on Amazon or eBay, then yes, that is probably true. And you can just operate from your kitchen table with some post packs and the help of Australia Post or DHL. But once you get out of that micro business level and you start to deal with the complexities of international business, then you really need to start to understand the culture and the business context of the target market. Oh my gosh, there are just so many things I could say here. I mean, if you are going to go and do an investment strategy and set up in a market, or even if you are going to sell your product and you, you know, you're just selling, but you're selling onshore in that target market, generally speaking, it is always much better to have the help of somebody who is local because they know the market. That's why companies often use distributors because as a small Australian team, you might be able to go to your target market of let's just pretend it's Malaysia. So you could go up to Malaysia a few times a year, but you could probably only do 100 meetings maximum by the time you also run the Australian business to go around and promote your product or your service. But if you said, well, actually, we'd like to have a distributor doing a partnership with us in Malaysia, and that distributor had 50 representatives, that distributor can be doing 50 meetings a day for you all day, every day of the year. And the economies of scale are massive. But on top of that, your Malaysian distributor is going to 
understand the people who you want to sell to in Malaysia much better than than you will. So and perhaps there's have some relationships there. I imagine relationships are quite important. Perhaps. Um, oh, in so many parts of the world. I mean, we're very transactional in how we think about business. So, you know, Australia. In the UK, the US, Canada, New Zealand, Scandinavia, we're all kind of, when it comes to culture, down the transactional end of the scale. So we could go into a one-hour meeting and kind of come out at the end having hammered out maybe not a whole deal but, you know, agreed something in principle and gotten started. In a lot of other cultures, your first meeting is not even for doing that. You know, you can't, it's not just walk in and do a deal and walk out. It's actually go in get to know the people and then find out, do we like these people? Do we think we can trust them? Can we work with them? And once that's been done, then move to start discussing business. In terms of what people can do, I mean, I would always say when you're going to a new market, go and equip yourself on what the culture of the market is. So I like to tell people they should open a culture file and that could be subscribing to an RSS feed or a business magazine online from that country or go and listen to some podcasts or go pick up some novels and some nonfiction books or watch some films, you know, actually get to know what the culture is about because this isn't just a a sales transaction you're doing. If you're going to be present in a country and be working and selling to people in that place, you actually have to understand how they operate. Uh, Another thing you can do is to go get some cross-cultural training for your team and actually get somebody who understands the culture to come in and explain to you what matters to people in that place and how you should communicate with them and what you should do so that they will, you know, be on the same page with you and they'll feel understood and, and respected yeah that all makes makes good sense look i think it's important to realize that even the big inner town companies like walmart entering japan and germany or starbucks in australia where we already had brilliant coffee and did not need that crap can i just say um <laughs> have not always succeeded in going global and that's you know often come down to you know in retrospect and hindsight which is always a magical thing because they fail to differentiate their stock in these markets so how does a business become globally appealing to the maximum amount of customers and you just accept there are some jurisdictions that are just not your bag and you just have to like live with that no look I don't think so I think it's really about tailoring your approach for each market and not starting out with the assumption that, hey, it's going to be pretty much just like doing business at home but operating in another language. I mean, it kind of blows my mind a little bit that all these large companies made the same mistakes. I mean, we even saw it with Bunnings going to the UK and, you know, buying up that chain of stores, which they paid something like £800 million for and then two years later, had to sell the whole concern for one pound and just destroyed billions in shareholder uh, value in the process. And, of course, the brand integration because that's what you get linked to, your failures sometimes as much as your successes. That's what people remember. We're still talking about it, right? (laughs) But, But, I mean, what was fascinating there was some bits of the business model did work quite well. And what I mean by that is everybody loved the sausage sizzle in the car park. Mm. That bit translated over perfectly. But somewhere along the line, somebody kind of forgot that, you know, the home renovation culture in Australia is not the same as the UK. And I'll give a couple of examples. In Australia, a lot of people still live on a quarter acre block where there is room for a log splitter and a ginormous barbecue. In the UK, people, if they have, you know, they're lucky enough to live in a standalone house, have a pocket handkerchief back lawn and they're, they're lucky if there's room in that in that space for anything at all. So, you know, those huge barbecues and log splitters that you see in all the Bunnings in Sydney and Melbourne just 
didn't really translate. And in Australia where you can be out painting the house most weekends in the year, again in the UK it's raining and drizzly and cold for nine months of the year and the enormous walls of Dulux paint and (laughs) all those colour cards just didn't really have the same appeal. Uh, And so, you know, because people are not consuming and using hardware and home renovation stuff in the same way, and that was a key kind of missing plank in that strategy because the the team that did that expansion didn't think, okay, well, you know, let's think, how do people actually go and consume hardware? I mean, I wasn't a fly on the wall, so I don't know exactly what went on, but maybe a little more work should have gone into actually seeing, well, how do people, what are, what are the home renovation trends? You know, how do people spend their weekends? Do they actually want to spend time walking around the Bunnings with their two-year-old in a in a trolley like we do here? So Yeah, and I think um, weather has a lot to do with it, like what you were saying and and perhaps space and, and how people live. But beyond that, maybe just the fact that, you know, you can't just sometimes push something onto a market where, they don't really need it, if you know what I mean. It's sort of it's all about context, and it's got to be what problem are we solving here? Because people only buy to solve problems. If you can't solve a problem for somebody, it doesn't matter how good your thing is; they're not going to buy it. So, no good or service has value on its own. It only has value relative to a person who has a need that you can fulfill. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds the same for most things from, you know, whether that be, you know, marketing and PR strategy to to global expansion, what problem are you solving and how do we do it and what's the best channel or way in which we do that and nuancing that for audiences. But I think for a lot of people, particularly like you say, they've had domestic success, perhaps that's hard. Um, to do and and do you think things like focus groups and those the sort of research pieces are really important? Are they things which you advocate for ahead of you know I guess chucking out bricks bricks and mortar stores or you know setting up oh. a whole online you know ecosystem for global sales? I mean yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean I don't think you should ever apl- approach a global expansion like this huge irreversible thing that you can never do. Essentially what you're doing is setting up a series of hypotheses and then running a series of hopefully fairly inexpensive tests or experiments to see whether your hypotheses are true. Yes. You know, so it really should be a step-by-step process that you do. And I think it is often when people kind of lose their business sense and the glamour of it all and kind of rush to sink heaps of money or do things quickly or say, oh my goodness, we have to get market share now or or we're going to lose the opportunity that things go wrong, you know. So that, I love enthusiasm for global expansion, obviously, or I wouldn't be doing what I do, but <laughs> I think it, it's got to be kind of tempered with what is really possible at the moment and, and how confident are we that this is going to work and what is that confidence based on? Yeah, absolutely. So how can you go global cost effectively and remain market price sensitive to your global customers? You did allude to this a little earlier in the conversation. Are there any hacks and ideas which you think people can apply fairly easily or universally? How can you go global and not spend too much money and remain price sensitive? Well, look, they're kind of two questions. So, I mean, on on the pricing first, there are a few pieces to pricing and we don't really have time to get into it all now, but you need in to look at pricing from body. That's clearly the message. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you could look at your pro pricing for a few different angles, but you've got to think about what does it cost you to sell your stuff? Because 
you can't go below the cost price, otherwise you're going to go broke. Yeah. You need to look at what's the competition doing because that will give you a range for the market. And then you need to look at, well, what is the actual value of this thing that we're selling to the people in that target market? Mm-hmm. And when you triangulate those things, that's going to give you a guide about what the right price for your thing is. So that's kind of like a cliff notes, a very, very cliff notes version of the pricing thing. In terms of how you go global cost effectively, well, I think you look at what are the resources available to us and you tailor your strategy to take that into account. I mean, again, that's an incredibly general answer, but there are lots of different ways of going global. There's everything from, you know, e-commerce at one end of the spectrum and fly in, fly out, which are about the most light touch things you can get through to uh, IP transfer strategies like licensing and franchising, through to distributors and agents, through to strategic alliances and joint ventures, mergers and acquisitions, or just setting up a greenfield investment in a new market. So, I mean, it's a giant spectrum from what multinationals do at one end to what micro businesses do at the other end. And I guess, you know, the way to encapsulate that in a nutshell is to say, really look at what can you afford and make sure that at least when you're starting out and if you don't have investment to do it, you kind of live within your means. Absolutely. That's great life advice, I think. (laughs) (laughs) So who have been your sort of key mentors and are there one or two that really stand out and what kind of impact have they had on your life and career? You know, it's a great question. I mean, I I won't name my parents because I feel like everybody does that. And obviously, you know, my parents have been like fairly foundational to my life, but that's not a very interesting answer. So let me let me talk about a couple of others that spring to mind. One of my teachers at university who supervised my honours thesis in law was a really amazing mentor. I'm still a he's still a good friend of mine and I've known him since I was about 18. He's 10 years older than I am. He always kind of encouraged me to take the direction that I want. I remember reaching out a few times and and being discouraged. And he gave me a great piece of advice at one stage when he said, if you can't, this is when I was just wondering if I was going to get into foreign affairs and trade, if you can't get the job that you want, make your own job, which turned out to be pretty prophetic because in the end, 10 years later or 15 years later, whatever it was, that was actually what I did. Um, So I felt felt that was like, he, he was somebody that I've always like looked up to and touch based with and always felt that even though he was like a very senior legal figure, I always felt that I had permission to take the direction that I wanted Mm. and to really work on what I was great at. One of the other ones that was fantastic, I must have a thing for the university people, but it was my (laughs) master's thesis supervisor in London, a great guy called Charles Tripp, who is one of the world's foremost experts on Iraq. And he really showed up in my life at a pretty critical time because I'd just finished this master's thesis and I was thinking, I wonder if I should do a PhD. And I went off and talked to him and said, well, Charles, what do you think? Can I do it? Should I do a PhD? And he said, well, look, you know, you did really well on this master's thesis. So clearly you should, you could do a PhD, but do you want to go into academia? And I thought about it and I said, oh, well, I don't think so. And he said, then you definitely shouldn't do a PhD. And so that was quite a key moment in my life because I could probably still be in London somewhere in that space having done a PhD, but I didn't. I took a really different direction and I took a management consulting gig out in Iraq. And so although he's not somebody who I chat to anywhere near as much these days, he was another person who gave me some really key advice at one of those crossroad moments of my life that kind of sent it off in a particular direction. 
Ah, fantastic. And a final takeaway message for us today on the politics of global business. Read and consume media, but please do so judiciously. Despite a lot of the very negative press that you are going to read at the moment about COVID, supply chain disruptions, wars with Ukraine, relationship breakdowns with, you know, friends and friends and frenemies in Asia, it doesn't really materially change many of the opportunities that are on offer globally. International opportunities are always there for smart, thoughtful people who have got the courage to go out and give things a try and the wisdom to actually go about it in a structured way. So even if you kind of look at the global landscape today and say, wow, it looks like a disaster zone, <laughs> that's just a lot of that stuff is noise. And Short if you go, term. If you go yeah. and get your data and you do your research based on data about where you should go, what you will see is that there are still absolutely enormous opportunities out there in the global space more than you could ever possibly hope to capitalise on. So essentially, if you want it to be, the world is still your oyster. That's great advice and really positive way to finish um, our show today. So thank you so much. And, of course, if you want to connect with Cynthia, there are some details on the show notes. Until next time, take care. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed The Politics of Everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.